Hello, Internet. I'm Ewan Spence. And I'm Dean Vuletic. And this is a chat over coffee. Yes, it's good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Another chat over coffee and a time for me to explore something that I've mentioned quite a few times and realised I need to find out a little bit more about that. The Eurovision Song Contest, thanks to the continued Russian invasion of Ukraine, has taken on quite a lot of politics over you know the last year and that's been growing over the last couple of years as well it's felt just a little bit more political as time goes by and part of the reason whenever that happens i always come up with the whole well you know that's why the eurovision song contest was there it was to foster relations between countries to help people understand other cultures to test our technology and that was all set up by marcel Besançon back in the 50s and isn't it all wonderful that it's still running 65 odd years later But it's really easy to fall into those, oh, here are the three things, bang, 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 to find out a little bit more about politics through the history of the Son Contest. I'm joined by Dean Valerich. You've studied this for a long time to quite a high level. Why don't you let everybody know where you are in terms of the academic side of Eurovision? So I started researching Eurovision some, I would say, 15, maybe 20 years ago, when I was preparing for my doctoral dissertation at Columbia University. It was in the field of contemporary European history. And I looked at why Yugoslavia used popular music in its cultural diplomacy and uh, domestic cultural politics after 1945, uh, throughout the 1950s and then the early 1960s. And then one of the issues I also examined was why Yugoslavia was the only communist party-led country in Eurovision during the Cold War. That took me to the archives of the European Broadcasting Union, to the documents uh, from uh, the Eurovision Song Contest, documents that go back to the uh, early 1950s and which allow us to uncover how and why Eurovision was established. And then I ended up teaching the world's first university course on Eurovision at New York University. I've since taught it at the University of Vienna and uh, Charles University in Prague. And I also led a research project on the history of Eurovision and what it tells us about the history of Europe. This I did at the University of Vienna under a research grant from the European Commission. And one of the results of that was my book, Post-War Europe and the Eurovision Song Contest, which is the first scholarly study on the history of Eurovision. And it has also been translated into Italian. That edition was released uh, in time for this year's Eurovision which has been a very historical Eurovision, of course, another historical turning point. That's kind of where where I sort of, the the politics really came to the foreground. And I started thinking back all the way uh, because, yeah, as I said there right at the top, the idea that it was there to bring post-war Europe together has always figured quite highly in in my sort of, when I'm doing the brief talking points on, on TV and radio appearances, but it's a lot more layered than that. And it's not necessarily that as the main reason for Eurovision. 
No, definitely not. And actually, when I examined the documents, when I examined the writings of the officials from the European Broadcasting Union at that time, I never found that being declared as one of the aims of Eurovision. I mean, the war had ended in 1945. A lot of reconstruction had occurred. New political entities had been established, new international organizations. So why 11 years later would a television program become a peace project in Europe when Europe was already at peace. And I have to point out, there were also improving relations between Eastern and Western Europe uh, in 1956 after Stalin had died and a more um, open and um, a Soviet leadership that was more oriented towards a rapprochement with the West had emerged. So really it wasn't a peace project. First and foremost, it was an experiment uh, in television technology, and it was also an attempt to produce a television show that could be uh, broadcast by all of the members of the European Broadcasting Union, therefore saving them some significant amount of money. And don't forget this. This was a time as well when television was just emerging and there were a lot of critics in European countries at the time regarding television. They thought it was a luxury. Um, some argued that it would have um, dire social consequences. Uh, others argued that it was just too expensive uh, of a project, especially for a lot of uh, small European countries, especially for Marcel Besançon, Switzerland, which had to do television broadcasting in three languages. So this partly explains why Marcel Besançon was behind the Eurovision network and why joint uh, projects, joint productions uh, in the European Broadcasting Union were so interesting to someone like Marcel Besançon. Because it's not, I mean, we, we say Eurovision, but of course Eurovision is also the transmission network and you have Euro Radio. And, and it, this was all about, you know, pooling resources together at, at that point in time. Absolutely. That's what it was about. It was about uh, pooling resources, learning from each other, um, jointly developing uh, technology. So uh, it was more a professional project by uh, media officials, by representatives from radio and television broadcasting organizations. There wasn't much politics behind it. And Marcel Besançon even wrote in uh, one of his opinion pieces in the official journal of the European Broadcasting Union that had parliaments been involved, they never would have achieved what they achieved. So where is this idea come from then? about that post-war politics, about that role for Eurovision in European society? I mean, you know, in the media, you very often need quick and easy sound bites to explain things. So um, it comes from that. It also comes from the fact that we tend to view uh, European integration as a teleological process, that we reached the European Union and that's what we were meant to reach throughout uh, the history of Europe after the Second World War, which is not true. This was never uh, something that was guaranteed, something that was determined. Um, Brexit also changed that. Um, but we have to understand that um, history is never uh, something that is uh, predetermined teleological, and the same needs to be said for uh, European integration. So in the 1980s, for example, 
of the 1970s, uh, the media wasn't speaking about Eurovision as a political project, a Europeanist peace project, let's say. That's an idea that only came um, after the 1990s with the expansion of European integration, the development of uh, the European Union and the emergence of uh, something known as a European identity, which we also didn't really have in Europe before the 1980s. Oh, there's so much to unpack there, but I'm going to go back a couple of steps first. Uh, let's go for Let's go. Let me state the simplistic questions. If Marcel Besançon is not the father of the Eurovision Song Contest, who is it? There are many fathers because we know how the European Broadcasting Union operates as an association. Uh, it operates um, according to consensus among, among its members on uh, many issues. A consensus is needed. And I would say that the same goes for Eurovision. It was uh, adopted as an idea modeled on the Sanremo Italian Song Contest. So in some ways we could say that Rai is the mother of Eurovision. I wouldn't put it down to any particular individual. Uh, let's say that any particular individual created this idea of Eurovision. I really don't have proof of that in the documents. What I do have proof of is the correspondence that occurred between Rai and the European Broadcasting Union. There were several figures involved there, Sergio uh, Pugliese, for example, from Rai, who um, invited EBU officials to come to Sanremo, to view Sanremo and consider it as a model for a common television show for um, EBU members. And uh, then, of course, you know, we had the meeting in Rome in 1955, uh, where the decision was taken to establish Eurovision. Uh, that meeting was also blessed by the Pope. So, you know, maybe we could say that the Pope was the father of Eurovision, or at least uh, gave his blessing to Eurovision at that time. <laughs> there were lots of different um, steps. And I should point out that in the mid-1950s, Rai staged the first international song contest for members of the European Broadcasting Union in Venice. Um, at that time, it wasn't a televised song contest. It was based on the participation of radio services. But this was actually the direct predecessor to uh, Eurovision. So there were lots of different steps that were occurring in the early 1950s regarding uh, the establishment of Eurovision. It also wasn't a predetermined process but there certainly was not one founding father. We also have to remember that Italy was a huge player in global culture in the 1950s. You know, it was a golden age for Italian cinema, Italian um, popular music, uh, Italian television as well. Uh, you know, think of the stars who came out from that period, Domenico Modugno, Sofia Loren. You also had these Italian-Americans who were uh, big stars like Dean Martin, so this was a golden age for Italian culture globally. And I think this also had to do something with the fact that uh, Eurovision was modelled on Sanremo. So if it's mostly technological and budgetary, was it the budgetary reason why it kept on running into the 60s? Because, you know, it's like the technology has proven two or three years. Why did it last five years? Why did it last 10 years? Yeah, this is, this is a great question because you know what I found in my research? That every year until the late 1970s, the European Broadcasting Union 
was deciding anew whether Eurovision should be continued. So this was actually not set in stone. It wasn't a definite tradition, at least within the EBU until the late 1970s, because from the start, there were criticisms that the contest cost too much, that the songs were of a poor quality, and uh, that the voting was rigged. Um, you know, we, we still hear these criticisms today. And um, the officials from the EBU weren't so sure that this was a format that they should continue with. And um, they thought that perhaps there were better productions to invest their money in. But every year, um, there was a television station that was interested in hosting Eurovision again. Every year they tried to improve the format by changing the rules, bringing in new uh, regulations uh, regarding the composition of the juries, for example. By the late 1960s, they realized that they really needed to appeal more to youth tastes. And uh, so that's when, you know, they start changing the rules regarding the composition of uh, the juries, insisting that there are more young people represented. Um, they then allow for more instrumentation on stage so that modern bands can appear. So it was always being uh, tweaked to uh, reflect the changing times, but it was also not a fixed feature of uh, the EBU's offerings, let's say, until the 1970s. That's when, until the late 1970s, that's when you don't hear them discuss at meetings in the EBU anymore whether Eurovision should be held. It's more a matter of how and where and what date. Was it always this sort of soft power projection, which we, we see a lot of use of, of soft politics at Eurovision nowadays. When did that start coming into the contest with the research? I would say from the very first uh, contest in 1956, if you look at the first ever song in Eurovision, it was a Dutch song which praised the beauty of Holland. Um, but I think that the most significant song in that year and which really set the tone for political and social messages in Eurovision was uh, the West German entry sung by Walter Andreas Schwarz, who was a Jew and a Holocaust survivor. So. Already, West Germany was sending a message about how different it was from Nazi Germany. The fact that he's being sent as the first um, singer to represent West Germany certainly does say a lot for the identity of the country. And it says that the country is very different from its Nazi predecessor. And, and that carries on through the 60s and 70s, sort of bubbling just underneath. I wouldn't say it bubbles just underneath. I think that there are some very conscious decisions being made by uh, television broadcasters in Western European countries about who they're going to send, including, let's say, Austria, where you see a similar thing to what was happening in Germany, where Austria sends the first Israeli singer to Eurovision, Carmela Koren. She represents Austria. In the contest, it sends the first Greek singer, Jimmy Makulis, at a time when uh, Southern Europeans uh, start migrating to work in Northern Europe. So you have a lot of these messages uh, coming through. And I very often think that they are deliberate. They are there to portray um, a cosmopolitan, modern, open image of certain societies, which is something that uh, continues in Eurovision today. 
is that the role of a broadcaster? That's quite a broad question there. That it's the broadcaster who should be making these decisions and doing that. Because we're into that thing of, like, the United Kingdom at Eurovision. It's not. It's the BBC at Eurovision. So they're always... There's always that distinction that's sometimes made and sometimes not made about who's making the decisions. Yes, I agree. Um, is it the role of a public service broadcaster is probably the question I pose because public service broadcasters have a um, role to play in presenting their countries abroad and in reflecting the social diversity of uh, their countries. And I would say when it comes to um, the 1950s and the 1960s, these public service broadcasters really had an important role to play in projecting uh, images of their countries abroad because there were so few television stations then. They were the only television stations, basically. Uh, the wave of commercial stations in Europe started really in the 1980s. So these public service broadcasters did have a very important role to play, not only at home in forging national cultures, national identities, but also in expressing these abroad. And I should point out that Sanremo was also established by Rai to um, give Italians common cultural references at a time when Italians were still very divided by regional dialects, uh, regional traditions. So Sanremo was a way for them to um, sing songs in standard Italian, because the rules also said that the songs shouldn't be in dialects, they should be in standard Italian. Looking back, how much of the politics kept Eurovision going on a year-on-year basis? This, I would say politics, this soft politics, this idea of representation, this idea of projection. I think the idea of promoting one's national culture was a major motivator for Eurovision entries. There were some tensions there, though, because for some countries it was about promoting their uh, national musical cultures, their languages, their artists. And for others, especially the bigger players, West Germany, the United Kingdom, it was about promoting their record companies and um, having their record companies profit from the contest and from uh, the successes of their artists in the event. So there were different motivations for different countries, uh, but I would say, generally speaking, that most of them saw it as an opportunity to promote uh, their national uh, popular music cultures, whether or not this would also bring them some uh, commercial benefit. We also have to remember that this was a period when songs were performed in national languages. Let's not forget that. And um, that's something that Eurovision has lost in recent years. I think this is changing. I think it's great it's changing. When I travel across Europe and speak to people about Eurovision, people from different countries, different generations, all tell me that what they want to see is artists from these countries sing in their own languages. And that's what's special about Eurovision. We don't need to see more copies of the global uh, top 10 hits in English. What people want to see is authenticity. And uh, that's something certainly that Eurovision had in those early decades. You talked earlier about the idea of a European identity starting to come through in the 80s and 90s. And you've also noted there that by the time we get to the, to the late 70s, early 80s, Eurovision has become a fixture. How did those two mesh together because a European identity 
gives the idea of everybody coming together as one. Eurovision is promoting about the individual countries. Was, was there a tension there? I don't think so, because as we said, by the 1980s, Eurovision had established itself as a fixture um, in the European uh, annual calendar. And at that time also, the European Commission was starting to think of ways to promote a concept of European identity uh, for members of the European community. And um, I read the um, documents from the European Commission then that dealt with Eurovision, and they really looked to Eurovision as an example of a successful uh, model for how to create a European identity, so much so that in the late 1980s, they started to um, also sponsor Eurovision and uh, the production of postcards, interval acts to promote the European community at the time. This was beneficial for the uh, European Broadcasting Union because this was a time when there were a lot of concerns about how expensive it was to stage Eurovision. Um, public service broadcasters in Europe were also starting to open up to the idea of commercial sponsorship. And this reflected a move towards the commercialization of the contest, but really the first big commercial sponsor of Eurovision at the time was the European Commission. That ended after 1990 when uh, the European Commission used the Eurovision in Zagreb to promote the European Year of Tourism. Um, my argument for that is that Eurovision didn't want to be associated with the politics of European integration in the 1990s because it just became a uh, too much of a burden for the European Broadcasting Union, and it would have limited the, um, the European Broadcasting Union's ability to expand to uh, Central and East Europe to uh, engage in more cooperation in that region. So there was this movement away there from uh, the European Union and its politics, which we also see in the symbol of the Eurovision Network until the early 1990s, the symbol of the Eurovision network was the circle of 12 stars. The Eurovision network and the Council of Europe pioneered this symbol in the mid 1950s and the European community adopted it as its flag in the 1980s as one of those ways to promote a European identity. So you see the symbol of the Eurovision network also changing uh, in the 1990s, which I think is is a way of the European Broadcasting Union um, to distance itself from uh, the politics of the European Union. But we also have to think about how Eurovision managed to produce European hits, how it managed to uh, produce the genre of Europop, you know, these short, catchy songs that were sung uh, across European holiday resorts and uh, discos and shopping centers. Um, and the format of Eurovision really had a lot to do with the production of uh, Europop in this regard. So certainly Eurovision had a role to play in producing common cultural references in European popular culture. And this is something that eventually also um, inspired the European Commission as it sought to create a European identity. Which means that the, there was a point where the Eurovision Song Contest was quite 
wouldn't have been able to say we're not a political contest because it sounds like they're in the late 80s. They're, well, not shoulder to shoulder, but they're walking alongside the European Commission, which is quite clearly got a political angle to it. Absolutely. But this politics was also there beforehand in other ways. It's just that the European Broadcasting Union hadn't developed mechanisms to deal with it. So if we look at the mid-1970s, for example, Greece enters um, Eurovision in 1974, Turkey debuts in 1975, but Greece boycotts that year because of the Turkish invasion of Cyprus in 1974. And then in 1976, Greece re-enters with a song that uh, protests uh, the Turkish invasion of Cyprus. And then I read the documents uh, in the European Broadcasting Union in which Turkish television protests against the Greek entry and says that it shouldn't be allowed because it's political. And the European Broadcasting Union writes back and says, well, actually, we have no rules on the political content of entries, so we can't censor the song. It has to be allowed. In which case, Turkish television responds by boycotting Eurovision that year, and it broadcasts the contest but replaces the Greek uh, song with a Turkish song. So it's it's always been there, absolutely. But but trying to find that balance point has always been there as well. I would say that trying to find the balance point. You mean in terms of whether political messages should be expressed? Well. The simple fact that you are putting nations on stage as the United Kingdom, as Greece, as Turkey, as opposed to TRT, ERT or the BBC, that process will inherently have some value in politics. Self-projection, being there, you know, you know, you know the, the, the Baltic countries running to, to the EBU to be on stage. So Estonia is there, Latvia is there, Lithuania is there. There has to be a balance point because there is always something inherently useful in the contest, in being in in being presented at the contest. Absolutely, and you know that the European Broadcasting Union perhaps um, was responsible for this already in the early years of the uh, contest when it decided to put the names of countries on scoreboards rather than the names of the songs. And there was a debate in uh, the European Broadcasting Union in the early 1960s as to how they should uh, refer to entries on the scoreboard, whether it should be the television stations, whether it should be the song titles, or whether it should be the names of the countries that they represented. And in the end, it was chosen to take the names of the countries because these were names that the audience could uh, easily um, well, these were names that the audiences uh, were familiar with. And I mean, you know, the British Broadcasting Organization just doesn't have the same ring to it as the United Kingdom or, you know, even the much longer named ARD uh, in West Germany is perhaps harder also for audiences uh, to register if they're not themselves German. So this was also done to make the contest more exciting, to make it easier for audiences to uh, relate to entries. So in some ways, the European Broadcasting Union is very much responsible and conscious of uh, what competing countries 
um, or, or are conscious of the atmosphere that having countries compete against each other creates and how it makes that an exciting and attractive uh, television show. I always say, um, you, I always get asked by journalists, oh, why is Eurovision political? Why is Eurovision political? Because we want it to be political. People watch it because of the politics. They want to be analyzing, you know, the voting and looking for all the political connections and messages. This is how we want to view Eurovision because it has always reflected uh, political, cultural and social change in Europe. And just watching how much coffee I have left here, if we snap over another 30 or 40 years of development and look at Turin 2022, I guess then that what we have is that expression of support for Ukraine. Absolutely. And if we look at Eurovision from this perspective, that people want it to be um, a political show, that they want it to uh, make statements, send messages, that they want the voting to uh, be read as an expression of a European public opinion, as they did when Conchita Wurst won, as was possibly the case in 1979 when Israel uh, won just after the Israeli-Egyptian uh, peace treaty. Perhaps, yes, this is what uh, viewers want Eurovision to be. And I guess that sums up the Eurovision Song Contest. There are so many viewpoints, so many angles. It is this living, breathing mirror going all the way back to the 50s. Absolutely. And as I say in the first sentence of my book, it's Europe's biggest election. In no other event do we see um, so many Europeans from uh, so many countries being able to participate in one common vote. Of course, you know, there are more voters in the elections for the European Parliament, but this is potentially the biggest election, even when it comes to voters. It, of course, has also a much greater participation than the 27 uh, member states of the European Union. So absolutely, there are so many angles that we can uh, view Eurovision from, which is why it's such an interesting topic to research and um, to use to teach about uh, European history. And uh, this is the point where um, I should mention your book. It's got a delightfully simple academic title behind it, Post-War Europe and the Eurovision Song Contest. Sometimes academic books are just, this is what's on the tin. In Italian, it's called Eurovision Song Contest, A European History. I quite like that. That feels a bit better there. Dane, where can people find out more about you uh, and your work? Take a look at my website, www.deanvoletic.com or uh, you can take a look at my book on the website of Bloomsbury, the publisher of the book. Um, on my personal website, though, you'll also find a lot of links to my media appearances, uh, some information about the new book that I'm writing on the Intervision Song Contest, and you can also contact me on the website if you have any questions. Right, Dean, thanks very much for your time. As always, we will have our comment section open back at the website, www.escinsight.com, where the rest of the content will be carrying on with interviews and news over the summer months. You can support us as well, patreon.com slash escinsight. Uh, and uh, your links, your likes, your loves, your shares, and all of that stuff that social media loves is always appreciated. Dean, you get to finish off the show. Ah, uh, now it's time for the air guitars. It's not air guitars, because air guitars would sound like this.
And that's a bit rubbish for a theme tune. We had to have actual guitars. This ESC Insight chat over coffee was with you and Spencer Dean Valesic. Find out more at www.escinsight.com and support us at patreon.com slash ESC Insights.